This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. I'm Jeremy, uh, one of the pastors here of the Axis, and I invite you, if you haven't already done so, to grab a Bible, grab your device, prefer you get the Bible, uh, hard copy, uh, from the seat there in front of you, and uh, turn to Luke chapter 8. We're going to be working through this story. Uh, Last week, as we're working our way through the book of Luke, each Sunday taking a chunk of scripture, a portion of scripture, um, last week we took note of the power that Jesus Christ had over nature. Remember, as he stood and rebuked the raging storm with crashing waves, he spoke and there was a great calm. You remember this? There was peace over the waters. As his disciples thought they were dying, like they, they woke him up basically saying it's, it's time to get out of the boat and, and make a, a swim for it, grab, grab some wood, and, and do your best to stay alive. We're perishing. Uh, you can read that in the previous uh, portion of Scripture there in Luke 8. But then after, after the power of Jesus provides this calmness, saving the disciples, they then make their way, which was Christ's full intentions of making it across the lake anyway, the Sea of Galilee. They make their way to the other side of the sea, and this is where we pick up our story in our text for today. So whereas last week we uh, noticed that Luke proved the power, the writer of this narrative, this account here, the historian Dr. Luke, he, he wanted to point out Christ's power over nature, right? Today, right on the heels of this story, Jesus does this, but Luke records this. Jesus now proves his power over not merely the natural, but the supernatural, even the spiritual. And uh, so that's where we're going this morning, as you heard the text read. So let's uh, focus here and together. Let's get to work. Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. Now, when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons for a long time. For a long time. Let that set in right there with you, okay? It's been a while. For a long time, he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs, the graveyard, caves of the dead. Now, this will be terrifying. Matthew 8 and Mark 5, if you want to jot those down, they provide us parallel passages of the same account, the same event, Mark 5 and Matthew 8. But Mark and Luke here both record this as this demoniac essentially waiting for Jesus. He sees Jesus and his disciples in the boat as they're approaching the land, and this man runs to meet Jesus and meets him as he's getting out of the boat. Okay, now be reminded the disciples had just escaped death on the raging waters, they knew that their life was finished, it was over. They were going to die at sea in the midst of this hurricane is the word for the storm in the Greek that's used here in chapter 8. So they just get over that. And I imagine them thinking, y'all, I'm never, don't tell Jesus, I'm never going on another boating trip with this man. Like this was nuts. I can learn, but I don't want to learn like this. And then they're greeted by this demoniac madman. They're like, Back in the boat, let's go, let's get away from here. Like imagine being greeted by this, what so many viewed as a monster. It's terrifying. You see, people knew about this place, this place that Jesus took his disciples to. And most people, particularly the Jews, stayed far, far, far away from this area. 
I mean, the hillside itself was known uh, for being ceremonially unclean. This is the land of the Gentiles, not the Jews. And as you've already heard in the reading of the text that we're going to get to in a minute, they're, they're pigs, disgusting pigs everywhere, which Jews cannot touch, that they cannot eat. They're unclean. Uh, in addition to this, there's demon-possessed people everywhere. And so this was a lot like a leper colony, okay? So crime and terrorism and death, that was this area. Demoniacs were contained there. It's as if the, the city essentially would say, you stay there and then all is okay. This is where you all belong. This is like the penalty box of the city where all things vile and disgusting are placed. It's difficult to imagine um, a dirtier place that Jesus could go to. Perhaps Gehenna where they uh, burn the dead and burn the trash. Perhaps that's a dirtier part of uh, the Middle East that Jesus could have taken his disciples to. Um, but this is definitely a filthy, dangerous place. And yet Jesus goes to this place intentionally. Jesus goes to this place on purpose. Culturally speaking, the disciples had to be terrified again. Well, I don't want to spend much time here because we've got a lot of work to do. But I do have a question. Where are these sorts of places today? Where are these places in Middle Tennessee? Where are these places in Nashville? You know, places that you don't want to go. Scary places, dangerous places, risky places, notorious places. They exist. Yet these places are where Jesus would go. If he stepped foot in Nashville, he would go straight there. Friends, please follow Jesus into these places for the salvation of many, and perhaps for you to learn more about why you were created to begin with, to define your purpose, to discover your future. Who knows how God could use it? So family, let's be known as a church who have lots and lots of people who intentionally move to and love on peoples and neighborhoods that scare other people and other churches. Let's be aggressive in our mission, just as Jesus is here. He's modeling it perfectly for us. Well, Cyril of Alexandria, a man who lived a long, long, long time ago, provided us with a helpful description of this man. He says, in great misery and nakedness, he wandered among the graves of the dead. He was in utter wretchedness leading a disgraceful life, deprived of every blessing. Think about that, not just some. He's deprived of every blessing, destitute of all sobriety, and entirely deprived even of reason. Yet in verse 28, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and he fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Nailed it. He knows who he is. I beg you, do not torment me. It's believed that this is the demon speaking, that this, this torment that he's speaking of is in reference to the time that's prophesied in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, where specifically the, the demons will have their day of judgment, specifically for these demons, these fallen angels. Now, I know that there are, there are typically two ways that we err in viewing or understanding demons. We either downplay them where we consider them uh, essentially non-existent, at best, they're very weak, and this does nothing but allow them to flourish. Or we over-exaggerate them, 
where you're looking for a demon under every rock, right? To the point where they don't even have to be around to torment us. They're doing so without even being near us. But the Bible provides a balanced view of demonic activity. The Bible recognizes, yes, there's the reality of spiritual oppression. There are evil spirits in the world who prey upon human weakness. And despite what some Christians say, not every sin or psychological disorder is the work of a demon. That's a misunderstanding, and it's hurtful and harmful. Often our sin is explanation enough. But demons do exploit spiritual weakness in order to gain certain control over particular individuals, warping their personalities and twisting their actions to evil purposes. This takes place much more often than what we're aware of today. Therefore, the hope and the answer is that we seek the Lord, that we know his word. It's why it's so essential for us to know his word. How did Jesus, how did Jesus combat the enemy when he was tempted in the wilderness? When he had the demon of all demons, Lucifer, Satan, while he was fasting in 40 days in the wilderness. How, what was his weapon of choice? What did he, he quoted scripture every time there was a, a temptation that made his way from the enemy. So we must know the word of God. And we must trust this word that we read. There's a difference. Not just reading and knowing, but trusting and hoping in placing your confidence in. This is my answer. This is it. We must pray for protection. We must lean heavily into Christian community. We must pray for discernment in the battle and wisdom as we move forward. But it's such a comfort that I found in our reading from this week in Romans 16 verse 20. And it's so like blatant that it doesn't even seem to be a portion of scripture. It seems more like a t-shirt, right? <laughs> It says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's wonderful news. But then to add on to this, the second part of this verse, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It's beautiful. Well, back to the text. This is a remarkable moment. It's outstanding. It's powerful. I beg you, do not torment me. This torment that this madman is referring to is the speaking of truth, the shining of light, the giving of new life, freeing people from demonic and satanic bondage, rendering these demons powerless. These things would judge this demon to his core. It would reveal his lack of righteousness. It would reveal his foolishness. It would reveal his utter sinfulness. Nothing, nothing could be more feared and hated by this demonic spirit. Nothing. Jesus standing there as Truth judges him to his core. This man knows that Jesus is the ultimate authority. He knows he has no right to stand before him. And take note that Jesus has yet to say one word to this man. This man runs up to Jesus there at this dock or on the shore and begins pleading for mercy, trembling in his presence. The very one who torments others is expecting to be tormented by Jesus. He literally collapses and falls down before Jesus, and the demon asks for mercy. This demoniac is the one who calls tremendous fear on anybody around. People would tremble in his presence, yet here this man trembles before Jesus, and Jesus has yet to say a word. Friends, that is power. That is authority. Just there, judges. Just there, 
causes the demons to be aware of their weakness and their limitation. Just standing there. Verse 29, for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. And then Luke provides context, as a good historian would. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard. Think about these uh, confining terms. He was kept under guard. He was bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds. And this is, a, this is a, another type of captivity. He would be driven by the demon into the desert. It wasn't his idea. He was being controlled. It's believed that the medical care of the time, they knew of no other treatment for the mentally ill of this sort than to keep them under the strictest restraint, just keeping them bound. But this man had overcome all these attempts to control him, to contain him, to restrict him. He knew no bondage. He could break free from anything. This demon-possessed man, he, he has a notorious reputation. This man made his home among the tombs of the city, and people in those days would have considered this complete degradation, deplorable, and rightly so. I mean, to live in such a place, the, the place of death, to, to live there in this God-forsaken area is a, is a, is a, shine of, a sign of, of lunacy. Most, most people, we, we have a disgust, and most of us even have a fear of death and, and decay, especially that of decaying corpse. I mean, it's, it's simply strange, if not deranged, for people to have a desire to be there, to be around death, to be around decay. I mean, imagine living there seeing all this, this, this rotting, this, the, the, the odor, the smell. I mean, the pigs are one thing, but rotting flesh in, in the rocks and the tombs is entirely something different. And to think this is home. Oh, this is where I belong. This is where I must go. I can drift during the day, but home is here in this colony of death. I mean, imagine this torment this man is under. This man's being controlled by these demons. And yet... The demons that were controlling him are aware of Jesus. These demons had supernatural insight into who Jesus was because, friend, Jesus was more than a mere man. Verse 30, when, then Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion. And context for many demons had entered him. He, he felt that he was driven by a mass of these conflicting desires and these voices that he was possessed by. As many demons as were in uh, soldiers in a Roman legion, which is up to 5,000. Thousands of demons in this man. In verse 31, and they begged, again, second use of this word, they begged Jesus not to command them to depart, to leave into the abyss, this residence or prison of the demons. If you want to read more about this, uh, Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 through 11, tells us about this abyss for the demons, this residence, this home for the demons, Revelation 9, 1 through 11. Now, verse 32, now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him uh, to let, let them enter these, so he gave them permission Again, the fact that these pigs were around and farmed in this region shows that this takes place in Gentile territory. And Jews are to have nothing to do with these Gentiles, nothing to do with these pigs. It's such a filthy place, let alone death. 
Verse 33, then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Y'all, this would have been crazy, right? This would have been an amazing, amazing, mesmerizing moment. You would never forget this. If you were present watching this, you would never forget it. But not just because these pigs rushed off into the sea and drowned. I mean, that would have been spectacular. But there was a Jewish rabbi, there was a teacher that spent time with a wicked and deplorable human being, a Gentile. This is over-the-top bizarre. It, it, to the point where you wouldn't even remember the incident with the pigs. There was a Jewish rabbi talking with this person. That's over the top. But then to even go further, for a Jewish rabbi and teacher to free such a madman from his tormentors, that's even more bizarre. That's what would have caught everyone's attention. That Jesus, a Jew, a teacher, a rabbi, had sympathy for this wicked man. He's getting what he deserves. He deserves to be tormented. Who knows what he's done? Yet Jesus has compassion on this man. He frees this weary man from all the demons. The power of Christ Jesus is clearly seen here, but also is his compassion. Do you see it? Man, there's nobody like Jesus. His truth and his, his power, but then also his grace, his tenderness, and his compassion. Tough, yet tender. Powerful, yet gracious. Truthful, yet compassionate. Never has there been someone so wonderfully complex and balanced as Jesus. Verse 34, when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. They were faithful to scatter city and country. And then the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, this is crazy, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and yeah, they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed, thinking clearly. The people of the city were on this same day, just moments earlier, terrified of this man because of the tormenting demons that had controlled him. And now they're afraid because he's sitting down listening. They don't know what to think. What's happened? But notice that Jesus, he looks beyond the demons. It's like, yeah, let's, let's, let's look deeper here. And he sees the heart of the person that's being controlled and possessed by those demons. He looked beyond the demons to the heart of the person. Through his entire ministry, Jesus didn't see projects. He saw people. He didn't see their brokenness as much as he saw their redemption. He didn't see their past as much as he saw their future. Yeah, he saw their hurt, but he also saw their hearts. He saw the scared man. He, didn't, he wasn't intimidated by the monster of the demons. He saw the tender, scared, fearful man. He was aware of the man's weaknesses. He saw the imago Dei. He saw the image of God that this man was created in, this beautiful image bearer. He saw the broken chains that were still on his wrist that he'd broken from. He noticed the bondage that he was under, literally emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually, such a tormented person, so much like you. So much like me. Everyone else judged this man as a demon, foolish, wicked, madman. Yet Jesus, he knew there was a person there, and that person has a heart, and that person has a purpose. 
And Jesus speaks to the heart of this man, and he frees him. Now, I don't want you to miss this. Let me put it out clearly for you. Friends, you may be known by many, to many, by your circumstances. You may be labeled by your past, okay? But Jesus has come to redefine you. Do you see that here in this story? He's come to set you free from these things, to no longer categorize you as you have been categorized. He's come to change the subject for you by changing you, by forgiving you, by giving you purpose. So regardless of your circumstances, regardless of your past, he's come to radically overhaul your life from the inside out, from the past all the way in and through eternity. Why? Because the power and the authority and the grace and goodness and kindness of Jesus is fascinating. It's what we won't be able to get over in heaven. There's a lot of fantastic things in heaven, but we will not be able to get over the kindness of God in Christ Jesus. That is what we will just be in awe of forever and ever. In verse 37, then all the people, the surrounding country of the Gerasenes, asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. So the people around, they're alarmed, they're frightened by what had happened. They urged Jesus to leave. They couldn't recognize the grace of the moment. Rather than praising God, they get upset. Rather than making much of Jesus and his power, they tell him to take his power somewhere else. Rather than being thankful to God and how he extended mercy and changed such a tormented person, they pushed Jesus away. I mean, perhaps they were afraid that Jesus may keep this land as his own home to set up shop, kick them out, get rid of the pigs, get rid of the demons, Jewish territory. Perhaps they were afraid that the Jews then would come in after this and leverage this moment of cleansing and and take up this piece of land. Or perhaps, quite frankly, for the farmers, they were afraid of losing more money because of Jesus destroying their livestock, right? But regardless, they fail to see who Jesus really was, and they miss out. I can't help but believe there's people like that here today in this room. You're here because you're fulfilling a religious, guilt-driven duty to show up on a Sunday morning to a church because you're in the South, a progressive city, but you're in the South, and you just feel like it's what you're supposed to do. You're new to town. Check it off the list. Perhaps you're fulfilling a favor of a friend, a nagging spouse, and you're just going to be here. Or the roommate who's just been relentless. Okay, I'll show up. So you'll shut up. You want nothing to do with Jesus. And if you're honest, you're disappointed in yourself that you're here, (laughs) you let your guard down, and you're surprised to be in a church gathering. Well, my prayer is that you would see Jesus for who he really is, and that you would welcome him because he loves you. Ah, he likes you, and he wants to free you. Here Jesus goes into this graveyard, and he sets a captive free. He redefines this man. He saves him. Much like the disciples asked last week in our passage, who is this man? Who is this man that can cause demons to tremble? Who who can cause demons to plead for mercy, to beg, literally beg in our text twice? Who is this that can cause demons to beg and cause demons to obey his instructions? Such power, such authority, such control. Do you know the real Jesus in this way? Do you have a a God-reverent fear 
of Jesus Christ? Are you daily asking for mercy? Are you striving to humble yourself, submit to his word, his truth, regardless of how it makes you feel, regardless of how difficult it is for you to live in submission to him? Are you seeking to obey his word? This is all true of this man. It's all true of this man who was once possessed, the one who's now a disciple, clothed, listening, learning, being discipled by Jesus, following Jesus. It's true of him. Let's read more about him in verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone, I love that he was no longer the demoniac. It's kind of like, yeah, that was then. He's different now. It's like he's the man who is no longer controlled by these demons. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away. Well, notice that those who hadn't experienced Jesus, who hadn't experienced his power, who haven't personally experienced his mercy, they, they want Jesus to leave. They want Jesus to leave them alone. Yet what they need is Jesus. And yet, uh, to, to sort of juxtapose their position here in this story, the, the man who had been changed by Jesus, he wants Jesus to stay. He wants so badly to go with him. You, you gotta stay or I'm going with you. There's no way we can leave. This is too incredible. But Jesus sends him away, telling him, verse 39, return to your home and do this. Declare. Declare how much God has done for you. And probably much to his uh, frustration, discouragement even, he obeys. It says he goes away, and proclaims throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. And the people of this region, they failed to see what took place among them, that it was glorious, that it was gracious, that it was wonderful. And this is part of the reason why Jesus leaves this man there. Because they missed it. Perhaps they would lean in and, and listen and learn from the man who they had known a man who had experienced God's goodness shown through Jesus. Perhaps they listened to his story. You see, much like this man, we, for those who are Christians, we have been shown radical mercy by God through Jesus. Much like this man, Jesus calls us to go and tell others in word and action all that God has done for us in and through the gospel, the finished work of Jesus Christ. I mean, it's simple to see that Jesus loves this man, right? But do you see how much this man loves this, this man's people? Do you see how much he loves this man's city who have rejected him? Do you see how much Jesus loves his, the, the Decapolis, where this man's from? He sends them a missionary. You see, when Jesus saved this man, Jesus knew that he wouldn't allow this man to come with him and his disciples. He knew that, that he, wasn't, he wasn't saved and transformed for him to come with him. Jesus knew from the beginning that he was going to leave this man, this redeemed demoniac, this Christian, he was going to leave him in his hometown for the sake of sending his hometown a missionary, sending his hometown the gospel. This man was saved in order to then be turned into a vessel of mercy to his own people. So God's desire was to send the most hardened sinner back to his people to reach those who were once afraid of him. The change in this demon-possessed man was radical. In fact, he was no longer demoniac. He's now part of the family of God with the right mind, with purpose, with power. But the whole time, this man was saved in order to be sent as a missionary. And so it is with every Christian. This is normal Christianity. 
This isn't for the brave mavericks who are going to go around the world. It's true for them, but it's also true for you if you just go across the street, walk across the lawn, go to the cubicle next door, leverage your break time at work, use the time between classes. Christian, God's will for you, I know there's a lot of mysticism in God's will for your life, and we overcomplicate it. Scripture tells us God's will for your life is for you to be sanctified. But it also, here, it's very clear that God's will for your life is to be sent as a missionary. That's God's will for your life. Everywhere you go, on mission, telling what God has done for you through Jesus Christ. Do you recognize that Jesus wants to love your family and friends through you, your classmates and your your roommates, your neighbors and your work associates through you, through you being a missionary sent to them? You haven't been changed just for you to be changed. That's so small. You've been changed in order to now be a part of God's redemptive plan to see those around you changed. And friends, this is a fact. So Christians, we have to embrace this reality. Scripture clearly teaches that God's mercy to the unbelieving world in which we live is Jesus saving people just like you and sending people just like you as missionaries. That's how he extends mercy to an unbelieving world. You see, certainly Jesus got into this boat. He takes off with his disciples. But that's, that's only part of the story. You see, in a way, Jesus stayed. You see, Jesus came to the Decapolis, this man's town, through this man so that they all would know Jesus. Certainly this man reached many people that that so many thought were just beyond rescue. And you too can reach people for Jesus that no one else can. It's why you're in their lives and it's why you have been changed by God's mercy and grace in Christ. He has saved you and shown you mercy in order for you, friend, to be sent on mission to tell others of the mercy and grace that you have personally tasted of and received, praying that others around you would taste and see the goodness of God's mercy and his grace provided to us in and through the finished work, the finished work of Jesus Christ. Understanding this is embracing your new identity, which is ambassador of reconciliation, This is embracing the new reality of the fact that I am a missionary and it's telling others about Jesus. This is God's will for your life. This is your calling. If you're a Christian, you've been called to be a missionary. Don't overthink it. Embrace it. Run with it. Roll with it. You've been changed by Jesus. Tell others about Jesus. Again, referencing the question in closing, just in referencing the question that the disciples gave in the text last week of who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? Who is this man that even these, these demons submit to him and obey him? Who is this man that has power and authority like this? Who is this man that has power and authority over these natural elements that we looked at last week, over supernatural realities that we're looking at this week? Who is this man that has power over sin that we look at every week? Daily and practically, who is this man? And and how is this question and answer changing you? Who is this man? How is that question and answer changing you? It's not just information. I don't want just an answer. I want to know how it's changing your life. That's the difference between submitting to the Holy Spirit's work in your heart and just knowing the right answer. There's a big difference. Who is this man? 
as Jordan alluded to in our call to worship, Jesus is the one who pursues us. He comes to us. He finds us totally aware of all our sin, the things that we've done that make us feel unworthy, that make us feel dirty, that make us feel useless, or also perhaps the things that have been done to us, resulting in us feeling as if we're no longer interesting to God. Why would he care? The things done to us where we just feel like, you know what, there's nothing in us that, that really would attract God. <laughs> Friends, that is the most incredible misconception that you could have grabbed hold of. Because the fact is that Jesus came for those very things. The things that you think disqualify you is the whole purpose that Christ was sent to us. He came to redeem you from your past. He came to, to bring clarity to your present. And he's come to firmly and eternally establish your purpose today and throughout the future. He didn't come for your good things. He came for your sin. He came for your past. He came for your baggage. He came for your secrets. Look at the man in the story. He knew who this man was. That's why he went there. He didn't go there because he had everything together. He didn't go there because he was looking for someone impressive. He wasn't going there because he was looking for someone proud. He was looking for someone who was weak, overwhelmed, burdened, frustrated, confused, and scared. Filthy. Friend, no one is too dirty. No one is too far gone. His grace is deeper still. Look at the man in the story. Who is this man? Friends, this is part of the reason we're, we're studying Luke, is so that we can grab hold in our hearts and our eyes looking at the real Jesus. Friends, this is Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the one who was sent by God as a missionary to us. He was sent on mission to seek and save the lost, dirty, sick sinners, to save sinners, to become sin for us, to take on our death as us, receiving God's punishment on our sin that we deserve, that you deserve. He took it for us. He beat death. He claims victory over all things forever and ever. This is Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Love this verse. For our sake, he, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He was made our sin. That's why he was sent on mission to us in order to make us now good enough, to make us righteous, to make us now fit for heaven. You see, friends, our greatest problem, it's not physical, it's not financial, it's not even mental. Our greatest problem is sin. It's spiritual. We are rebels. We're rebels against God, running from him, despising the truth of God. We hate the light. Our sin calls us to be drawn in, to enjoy the darkness, to enjoy secrecy, to enjoy hiding, to enjoy shaming others and experiencing shame. It's a way that we cope with our sin. I deserve this. This is just my cross to bear. You see, we have an enormous lack of faith in Jesus Christ, and we doubt the goodness of God. Yet, in the midst of all this sin and rebellion, when we call out to Jesus, the Son of the living God, the power above all other powers, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, you call out to Jesus, seeking for deliverance from your bondage, from your sin, he responds. He doesn't ask questions. He doesn't delay. He doesn't put you in time out. He doesn't say, well, I, I remember that time in 88. I remember that time in 2003. No, he forgives and he can be trusted to handle what your needs are and he can take care of your brokenness and your sins. 
and he takes care of your sins and he restores you back into friendship with God, something you thought was never gonna be possible again. He does this through his perfect life, through his substitutionary death and through his glorious resurrection. I mean, friends, when we look in this story, we see probably the worst human being that we could ever consider. You see someone who's in the worst condition of anyone that we could ever imagine, naked, lonely, violent, and insane, and he's walking amongst the dead. He's probably one of the most needy people we can imagine, yet even in all his misery, we can see ourselves. Every one of us, regardless of how much money we make or how, how well we can clean up or how nice we can speak, regardless of how kind we can be to others, how generous we can be with digging wells and loving the unlovable. All these things are wonderful. But regardless of all those things, we still are this man. This is our condition. This is our situation. Why? Well, because sin has similar effects on everybody, on all of us. Sin exposes us naked in our guilt, and we have no answer. Sin alienates us from one another. It leaves us lonely and alone. And sin makes us violent, it really does, at least in our thoughts and our attitudes, if not played out in our actions. Spiritually speaking, we walk among the dead. You see the madman in the graveyard, it shows us of our wretchedness condition. It's our condition outside of Christ. He, we get to see here in this man our extreme neediness before God. We actually get a picture of our salvation here in the story of Luke. Uh, this is one of the more clear and beautiful pictures of the gospel, of your story, of you being saved by Jesus Christ here in this text and anywhere in the Bible. This is remarkable how clear it is. You see, this was a hopeless place where only hostility and terrorism flourished. This is where fear and darkness reigned. This is where hatred was prevalent and growing. No one could pass by there, yet Jesus goes directly to this place. I mean, we see Jesus going into this foreign land full of unbelievers, full of unbelieving Gentiles, full of dirty pigs, disgusting idolatry, sick people, dead people, loitering in their death. And Jesus saves those people. He doesn't judge them. Rather, he's judged as them. He doesn't point fingers. The gospel tells us that he received all the finger pointing for them. Jesus helps the hurting. He doesn't add harm. He changes the hurting. He doesn't add burden. He sets people free. He doesn't increase bondage. And he gives hopeless ones hope, not a to-do list. And then he sends, these, he sends this, this person who's been changed to other hurting people as a living testimony so that they too would be healed by grace, that they too would be changed by Jesus. Friends, Jesus is the one who's aware of every storm that's raging circumstantially in your life. He's, he's the one who's aware of every storm that's raging emotionally in your heart. And Jesus cares deeply about your fear, about your trouble, about your torment. And he has the power and he has the authority to change every single life circumstance that you may face. He has the power and authority to change everything. But if through his mysterious will, he doesn't. If he doesn't calm the storm, if instead he, he brings you through it. If your life is a storm all your days, his compassion and his nearness, his presence in the midst of struggle and torment, 
His nearness and his presence has the power to calm our hearts. And even in the midst of the storm, we can do what he did and take a nap. Even in the midst of the storm, we can experience freedom from fear. Be still. Calming our hearts might not be calming the storm. He might calm the storm, but he can speak to our hearts and say, be still. Outside is rolling. Just outside is chaos. But in here, it's peace. It's a great calm because of who he is, because of how he loves. Friends, this is Jesus. He's aware and he's near. And he's drawn to you. He's drawn to your need. I mean, he's the compassionate Savior who can be trusted. He is good. He saves and he rescues broken, humble, confused, and needy people. Look at the text. Do you think that man wasted time that day by going to Jesus? <laughs> no. Friend, coming to Jesus today, humbling yourself before him, it's not a waste of your time. In fact, you'll never be the same again. You can be freed and you can experience the love of God like you've never thought possible if you would just humble yourself. I've said it before. There's one reason why we won't. It's because of our pride. Come to the end of yourself. Humble yourself. And experience love, grace, and kindness. Jesus hasn't met his match yet. Your situation, your story, yourself, uh, you're just not the challenge that you think you are. He can handle it. Come to him and be changed. Trust him and build your life on him. Build your life on Jesus, the real Jesus. And if you want to become a Christian today, I'm going to be hanging out up here during communion. And also our deacons of prayer are going to be in the back. You just say, man, I don't really know what to do. I just know I'm not a Christian. I want to be a Christian. I will help you. I'll pray with you. I will show you truth that will set your heart free. If you just humble yourself. Our deacons of prayer can show you the same thing. That's ultimately what you're looking for. You're not looking for more knowledge. You're not, you're not looking uh, for more money. You're not waiting for something else to happen. What you need is Jesus, and it's right here. For those who have received this grace and mercy, we're going to remember the work of Christ through communion. We're going to do this by taking bread and dipping it in juice or wine, remembering his life as us and his death for us. So I invite all those to come when, when you're ready, when you've thought through this, when your heart is truly grateful and thankful, you can come on up. We're going to have servers on either side of the stage as well as one over in this corner. And again, take advantage of our prayer team or come find me. I'll be right here. Love to talk with you. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this time together in your, in your word. Thank you for this truth. Thank you for allowing me to believe it. And even through preaching it, give me the ability to believe it even more. 
Thank you for that grace. Lord, I pray that you would indeed free people and save people and send people out on mission so that others would be freed. Lord, give us your eyes, how you see our friends and family and the bondage they're under. Give us your eyes and how you see these who, who aren't Christians yet. Lord, give us your eyes, Lord, so that we would certainly go to them and offer them the hope if we could really see their need. And often it's because we're overlooking our own need for the gospel. So God, help us continue to be amazed by this gospel because something truly amazing is easy to share. Something so entertaining to our spirit is easy to show others and tell others. So let us be captivated by the gospel. Let us be energized by its truth. God, wow us again through song and through the sacrament of the Lord's table. Lord, let us be wowed by what you have done for us. Help us not get over it. Help us not get over it. Lord, it's what our city needs. It's what we need. It's what our families need. It's what our friends need. It's what our roommates need. It's what our work associates need. It's what the homeless community needs. It's what the rich suburbs need. It's the rough inner city needs. Lord, it's the fake and the phony. They need this. Those striving for authenticity, they need this. They're trying to stay busy so I don't have to think about these sorts of things. They need this. God, help your church be the church. Help your church be sent as they were fully intended from the beginning to do so as missionaries, taking this gospel fearlessly into the face of those tormented, fearlessly into the face of the enemy, into the darkness, believing that you are at work and that it's not just them treading into the darkness, but Lord, they're following your lead into those places. Lord, you are the greatest missionary. Help us be missionaries who are filled with your very spirit, empowered by your spirit, who are believing and embracing the gospel more and more each day, who are submitting to your scriptures and who are linked arm in arm as a team of soldiers pressing into the darkness with other Christians in community. God, change Middle Tennessee through what I hope is a humble group of people who just simply can't get over Jesus. God, do this. Help us remember this even now as we take this communion. Bless this time as you can and only you can. In Christ's name, amen. This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.